I caught y'all half a hand to live out of y'all. This is the show right here. Hey, everybody, welcome, welcome, welcome to the Poetry Gods. My name is John Sands. What up? My name is Aziza Barnes. My name is Poppy Churro, a.k.a. Cola Champagne Poppy, a.k.a. Poppy two times, two times, a.k.a. Jose Guadalupe Olivares in the building. What's good, y'all? <laughs> hey, everybody, y'all. Welcome to the Poetry Guys. We are very happy to be coming to you live from our famous Hummus Emporium. Yeah, I think that's yeah. the cleanest a.k.a.s we've ever had. That was Truly. pretty good. Well, Jose is all of those people. That's why he can do that. <laughs> You know, when we do our AKs, it's like we are very clearly only one person, but Jose is all six of these people. When I do my AKs, I feel like the, the panic is really tangible. It is. Like, <laughs> I mean, when you hit Holy <laughs> Moses, I was a little worried. Yeah, I have an existential crisis every time I do it. But you bit. know what we don't have an existential crisis about is who our guest is today. It is the honorable oh, and yes. true and the good goodness, Willie Perdomo. Yes. Everyone's hey, yeah. yeah. A dream come true. Truly. Yeah, we're having our dreams come true out here. What's up, bitch? That's what this is about. I have to say this, that when when Willie agreed to do the show, John immediately sent us an all-caps text. (laughs) (laughs) And the three of us were just... Like, oh my god, like Freaking I immediately out. bought tickets to come to New York. I was like, yeah. I guess I'm in New York. Let's do it. Let's go. <laughs> That's yeah. what got you to get the ticket, I feel it's like. It's true. And Jose, like, tweeted it out suspensefully to be like, <laughs> the poetry <laughs> gods have a special surprise. Yes, good job. Thank you. I Thank didn't you very see much. That, so I, I yeah. yeah, but as always, we have to start with our favorite segment, which is What's, what's on your mind? <laughs> Does it feel like a game show? Yes, a that's bit, why it's funny. Bit, a little I just bit. feel like we're on the prices, right? And one day we're going to have Steve Harvey on the show and he's going to be like, what is wrong with everyone? Because you know he's on these game shows yeah, now. He's so going to be like, shows. oh no, this yeah. is great. Yeah, this no, is my yeah. aesthetic. Uh, it is you know? genuinely. I just love when he like is mean to people on the game shows. <laughs> Anyway, what's on? <laughs> <laughs> you see, yeah, you go first. What's on your mind? It's, I'm not. I don't know what I'm Jose, you're going you're yeah, go first. Yeah, yeah. What's on but your mind? But thank you. Uh, Apparently, Steve Harvey's on my mind. Yeah, shout out. Sorry. Maybe Maybe no shout out to Steve Harvey. Yeah, no, no. Uh, he's good. What, what's on my mind is, and I got this, you know, I, I tweeted about it. I was like, I don't know what I'm going to say on the podcast. And uh, the homie Robbie Q. Telfair uh, mm. tweeted to us and was like, I'd love to hear y'all's opinions about Rupi Kaur and all the criticism that she's gotten. So for those of y'all who don't know, Rupi Kaur is a poet, a woman of color, wrote a book called Milk and Honey that's been on the New York Times bestselling list. Really, really wildly popular book of poetry. And recently has been getting a bunch of critiques. First was accused of plagiarism. uh, And just yesterday or a few days ago, BuzzFeed published a takedown, sort of like a critique from an English professor about why the poems aren't good, uh, which is all, it's it's very, so, so that's been happening, and I've been reading uh, George Orwell's 1984. Have y'all read that? No. Not since high school. So, yeah. all right, where were we? So in, in 1984, they have this, in this society that George Orwell created in this book, they have this moment called Two Minutes Hate, which is every day... 
like the you know a fire alarm is pulled and everybody stands up and they shout hate words and curse words at this like mysterious figure who everyone believes is like undermining society right this dude named goldstein and later on in the book you find out that the reason why that process is useful to the government is because it it gets everyone to direct their hate towards this person who may or may not be real but it it gives them a target you know what i'm saying so instead of thinking about like well you know what what is the government you know what i mean like instead of asking questions about how happy they are or where they're at it like gives them a target so it it gives them a scapegoat rather right you know what i'm saying so donald trump vibes well yeah distract you with the thing while i do the thing right 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 Which, which i do think in terms of that too right like everyone is sort of busy like mm-hmm. getting getting their bars off on on Donald Trump and and writing critiques of him as if there wasn't a whole other mechanism supporting it you know what i'm saying it's not yeah. just the person it's yeah. a whole lot deeper than that um but anyway i've been thinking about it as i've been watching these critiques come out and they they've been pretty there's been like a pretty large reaction to to Ruby's work and it's just made me think about like what's underneath that you know what i mean like why are we so Hmm. angry that this woman is succeeding with her poems this woman of color succeeding with their poems Hmm. i know hanif abdul rakib and safia hello have mentioned you know that a lot of times it's paired with it's not paired with the upliftment of other women of color who are writing poetry and that maybe we should do that but i just wonder like why is this the scapegoat and Hmm. and why why not work like where where else could we be diverting our attention? Sure. I don't know if y'all, what y'all think, or like if you've read her poems or, or what you think about that. I think it's plugged into a system. I mean, it's obviously plugged into different systems of power, but there is a phenomenon that it's taking advantage of inside of people, where it's like, for instance, you could be at an open mic and somebody does a poem that you don't feel has a lot of craft, but is genuine or, you know, like it's just what they do and you feel really comfortable being like, Hey, yeah, round of applause for that person who's just like saying their truth, right? Mm-hmm. But then that person wins the slam, and all of a sudden the same people who are applauding them for like yeah, speaking yeah. their truth on the open mic feel more licensed to critique. And then that person wins the Pulitzer, <laughs> or whoever, you know what I mean? And then, right. and then they, the further they get up people's perception of accomplishment, the more license people have to... Uh, not think of them as a person, but to think of them as like a status that mm. is able to be critiqued. But you plug that into a racist system, or you plug that into a patriarchal system, and mm. you know, like obviously, it uh, it becomes more combustible. You know, I have a lot of really complicated feelings about this. I think because uh, part of me realizes I'm refusing to buy that book or support her in any way uh, mm. because I read a few articles. And the way they position the articles, mind you, I agree that all of this is, like, just not the point. Like, Mm -hmm. girl, write your book, get your paper. It has actually nothing to do with me. Mm -hmm. You know, it's how I feel about it as a writer. But I heard that who she had plagiarized from was Nyara Warweed, I think is how I pronounce her name, who in certain articles they're like, oh yeah, this Tumblr poet, this Instagram poet. But that shorty, while she uses both of those platforms, has been writing her ass off. And I did notice that it is plagiarized from her, but not just the writing, the overall aesthetic quality of the book, the font choice, the way it's structured on the page is like, I had not heard of Rupi Kapoor before. 
and maybe that's my own bad as like a reader of things but when I I'm very sensitive to and I don't know if that's what's happening here but it felt like the vestiges of this thing I'm sensitive to which is like people who want the life of a writer without having to write and so when I see someone jock not only like the literal words but also the overall aesthetic quality goal and and right like that freaks me out because I do know that there there are so many people who want to live like writers without having to do the interrogative self-work or mm. or fucking go through or have hard conversations or you know what I'm saying they don't want to live it they want to be cute and snap a pic and sell a book. And you can do all those things, but when I when I see that that line is quite possibly the thing, that disturbs me, I, f- I find it disturbing. Now, I don't know if that's what this is, I don't know this girl, but yeah. I do notice myself consistently not buying this book. And Have you bought Nayira's book? I've not bought either of their books. I just don't want anything to do with any of it. Yeah. Like, it freaks me out. All of it freaks me out. Yeah. I haven't bought their books either, but I've seen them shared a lot. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, I don't know. It's not poetry that... It also doesn't move me. It doesn't necessarily move me. But the critique is interesting to me. You know what I mean? Like I understand why people people are moved by... People share all sorts of memes and other Mm -hmm. things. You know what I mean? And so I like understand the appeal and why someone who mm. might be going through a thing might read a poem about self-love and no sure. matter like how simple or straightforward be like i really appreciate this poem right. you know what i mean and at that moment and want to share and straightforward it straightforward might and be the book, what you need it might yeah. be what you need right so i'm not mad at that but no. the critique and often from white you know either poets or whatever mm. that that's where i'm like why are yeah. y'all so eager to take this person down mm. is it because oh, you know sure. they don't come from the machine so you're talking the about MFA, the, the white they, people i mean sure that too but it's i mean i, I guess all of it is just interesting to it me is. like why why all this hatred towards like for so long people are like we wish poetry was you know what i mean and everywhere now and now here's a poet who's everywhere and people are mad what but i I thought i think too right not only i feel like now we're in like a really unprecedented age of poetry due to like technological advances like like the form has caught up with every medium right every shareable medium because i think one of the joys of poetry is that it is deeply accessible in that it's like a little love letter every time right even a book is a little love letter it's small usually at its best brevity i think is like the jam right i agree right but I think then the pitfalls become what like music's pitfalls are. Do you know what I mean? Kind of like, oh, well, he sounds like this dude. And, and everyone, so scarcity, I think, is the thing, right? Like, everyone's like, oh, well, if Rupee got it, then they ain't room for me. Mm. And I think white people are like, well, there can only be one. So if Rupee got it, ain't no room for not, not how, however I say that. And she name. broke my understanding of how I was supposed to acquire the good How things. I was supposed to come up. Oh. And my fucking thing is this, is like, just fuck the table. Ain't no table. It's a house party. Like, if we're doing it. It's a house party. Mm-hmm. And Rupi, I might not fuck with you. I don't know you. I don't even really know your work. But I think what's exciting is actually that like these two women are able to coexist and there is able to be this conversation. Yeah. Because it, it completely debunks that there can only be one. If there's quite literally two doing very similar things. Word. I don't know. Yeah, so that's that's what's on my mind. <laughs> uh 
John, what's what's on your mind? Here's what's on my mind. Let's uh, talk about we it. have a podcast called The Poetry Guys. <laughs> yes. Okay? And people tune in. We are very grateful for you, you know? And at the end of every Shout episode, you get to hear a poem from uh, one of our guests. It's always like a fucking transcendent experience, certainly in the room and hopefully for you. But I realize that we're the poetry gods and you never get to really hear our poetry other than the one live episode that we released. So I was thinking... You know, maybe some of you are at home, and I'm speaking to you specifically, if this is you, who are like, hey, I love the poetry guys. I wish we got to hear their poetry. Uh, and so I've asked, I want to, I want this. it's like in Congress, I want to cede my time, oh, you know, uh, <laughs> to the esteemed poet from Los Angeles. Uh, and so with my What's On My Mind, I would like to hear a poem from the Aziza Barnes. Yeah. And I feel like you do too. So, folks, we're going to hear a poem from a poetry god, and I hope you appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, and everyone, gender non-conforming, it's all going down. Let's Here we go. It. Put your hands together for Aziza Barnes. Yeah. I World love premiere it. exclusive. It, it is. It, it is? is well, no, it is on here. But I don't think many people have... Well, premiere exclusive. He's going to say what he's going to say. I love it. I love it. Shout out um, to the Medley Brothers. So I'm writing a novel. And I... Because when I went to Mississippi to like thoroughly you know, be deconstructed as a human, yeah. I wrote a novel. I actually did do this. And now I'm like putting it together. And a series of poems are going to eventually become chapters. But these series of poems are called Slave Poem. And you have to, it's in all caps with an exclamation point because, anyway. Slave poem. It was so hot, there were dead roaches. I love you, and then it got roaches. You had a lot of last name going on, and I woke up bleeding through linens. A rack of ribs is the style I bleed out on linens with. A messy bitch, when I feel ignored, or like staying alive. Two tumblers of champagne and tits out if I want. I wake up with dirt, caked, lined as in caulking between skin and nail. I can't stay awake without breaking my heart. I break into houses, change my name for an interval, see how the other half tastes. The first time I felt the chill on my face in months the white man who lives in my head not far from the white man who lives in a slave castle and would point mm. from a balcony down to a black someone in that day she would feel water on her body smell like an ocean she couldn't see for his for him for a crippled arch and rushed to the end of the world took a swig of jim beam and a choir of yielded crops sprung out my chest where the blonde hairs grow a dark omen from the nothing black about me comment section i lose weight in my feet and watch videos of white children shooting deer for the first time there's no such thing as a fixed location. The deer cocks his head at the child's step toward him, loosens the thrill of her name, I believe you love me, until I'm sitting in a bar of fluorescent purple, and I know you're thinking of someone you lived with before. I fuck you until somewhere she is a meter high. A man in Mississippi sees me walking in bed I'm just a ghost, niggas, and he's more sure of my body than I am. Smoke socket, liquor bound. I am my grandfather's cursed extension. I am nothing if not my colonizer's bastard come. I am nothing but, nothing but, I am warm, and riddled with life. Occasionally a deer will walk in front of my porch. Occasionally albino lizards crawl into my home and die. I know this is my dad begging. A skeleton isn't hard to wait for. You just have to clear your schedule. It's tax season and flu season and I don't say cotton. It's offensive and the men sometimes have hands so big my throat lengthens, choke me out and when I pick up air someone will be left knocking the blonde field. <laughs> Throw water on the mic, man. Yeah. 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 
to read new work in front of like my best friends and my mm. hero like yeah. this is just what it like like you also like like we know each other like people but like hero you know it's true um so that's tripping me out in the best way um i guess what's also on my mind is um i mean yeah kind of like off of what jose is saying and also you know because we live in a limited world of like limited things to be into limited like we're finite right mm -hmm. so like of course people are all there's gonna be a bunch of people into the color green at the same time you know what i mean Shout of course i mean the color green is all around it's great That's and of course color. there are gonna be people who like wear the same shoes and whatever and like that i mean you know shit overlaps and it can be very beautiful but i i think what i'm interested in is in um i don't know just why are you into what you're into and like an interrogation of why you're into what you're into. Like I've been talking a lot with my friends about like, I don't know, like like why I'm so into like katana swords, you know what I mean? Like I have a wooden mm. katana sword. What's that, a katana sword? So right, it's a um, samurai sword oh, right. called a katana, right? Yeah. So I have a wooden katana that's um, in my room all the time. And when I feel nervous at night before I sleep, I'll like put it next to me. And it's just, I feel safe with it. And like if I feel unsafe, I'll like cut the air around me because I'm like a very anxious person. And it and I don't know. And I, I keep thinking like, why am I into this? Why do I feel such a kinship with this one aspect of one period of Japanese culture? And then I'll think about like Seven Samurai and I'll think about watching that movie with my dad. And I'll think about that's the only way I kind of know my grandfather, James Barnes, who mm. showed that movie to my dad. Mm. So then I wonder, like, am I only into the things I'm into because of lineage? But then I'm not responsible for what I inherit. So do I inherit everything I'm into? Am I responsible then for what I inherit? You know, I don't know. Like, I wonder how much of you is your own making and how much of you is just kind of shit you barely remember falling in love with because someone gave it to you. Mm. You know what I mean? And, and then that makes me wonder, like, how to approach certain things I find vacuous or... Wait, right. Say more. Uh, what do you mean? So, so like, you find so like things I don't like, right? What I don't like, God, I, I don't like a lot of things. I love. <laughs> oh my God. Okay, so like, right? Um, I love talking about what I don't like. Okay, so simple. I, I I don't like hockey. I don't like it. I know it's very typical. This bitch, ball headed bitch from New York, who black, who don't like hockey, whatever. But I don't like it. I don't like it. There's no piece of my life that has ever attracted me to hockey, and there's no memory of my life that's ever gotten me there. But I would be around, like, hockey players. I would be around, like, snow, because we'd drive up to the mountains. Like, I'm around snow sport. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I don't like that. I find it, I find it stupid, and if it died tomorrow as an entire culture, <laughs> I wouldn't care. Do you know I what I mean? Care. I wouldn't care. Like, Can I, I say something? What? I never liked hockey, and then the Chicago Blackhawks... <laughs> <laughs> not very good at hockey, and so I, 
How? I very quickly how? became a hockey fan. You're not like, a hockey fan. You I, just are a fan of what I you're know. a fan of, which is Chicago. He's yes. a city That's fan. Yeah. He's a city you fan. Exactly. Like one place. <laughs> exactly. <a lot>. But <laughs> in, yes. two, in 2010, yes. the Chicago Blackhawks suddenly like competing for a championship, and I was like in the dorm rooms watching the fucking hockey game. Amazing. Absurd. Loving it, loving it. I was like, yeah, yeah. Get yeah, that go. Became a hockey fan. I did. In, right, I mean, right. well, to a point. <laughs> right. I, mean, I did. I don't watch it all the time. But right. if the Chicago Blackhawks are good, I watch. I'll take a look. <laughs> I tried that with the Columbus Blue Jackets. See, what like, are these guys? Right, shout out to my It didn't King. work out. I was like, it's like I need another sport. I'm gonna track the Columbus Blue Jackets, and I just like oh did not Lord. give a fuck. I need got it. That would have been a true. I know. Test. I watched that. Would have been a true test of commitment, though, right yeah. there, man. That would have been a level. Yeah, you I know mean, what it is. You can't get into a sport with a bad team mm. unless you're young. You can't be an older true. person who gets into a sport via a bad team. I got into the Cincinnati Bengals very early, <laughs> and it's a devastating relationship. No. One of my but, favorite things is watching football games with John Sands. Oh. <laughs> my man is always heartbroken. It's hard. I mean, this is which, from a Bears. It's all right. from a fucking Chicago Bears. Right, which is, for, for me, you know, football is barely a sport anymore. The Chicago Bears are so bad. Can't wow. stand them. All but the Chicago know, people are disowning the Chicago Bears. I hate they the Bears. They can't tolerate they anything suck. less than excellence. They they just suck. Fucking, That's just like the, the fucking Joe Jackson of the city. Like, hating everything unless it's perfect. But you're right. In that instance, my lineage is Chicago. And so yes. anything where I'm like, oh my God, Chicago's... Right, and it ties te- you to it. You're telling me the Chicago roller derby team is dope? I'm well, roller watch. derby is I'm in. I'm, all right. I mean, yeah, I don't need an excuse to go watch right. roller right derby, now you but don't. I will. It's amazing. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, Chicago, anything. The Chicago fucking dice players, I'm there. I'm like, watch That's it. Awesome. But, you know, I think about things in terms of like... So, right, right. So, you are what you love, mm-hmm. Right. And what you love is probably what you inherited, right? So then when I meet someone, or when someone meets me and they find me deeply off-putting, do you know Mm. what I mean? Or when I meet someone and I find them deeply off-putting, like, I always find it interesting if we like the same shit, though. You know, because then I wonder... If you like the same shit and you're still But we just aren't into each other. Uh. And I wonder, like, what... Or if, like, we totally love other shit you know like when it's someone who's just like oh you're just not into anything i'm into then i understand like the divide is such that we have no activities to do together do you know Mm -hmm. what i mean like i'm trying to get back to preschool with my shit like (laughs) why did i like calvin calvin also liked watercolors do you know what i mean and if i didn't like abby it's probably because she liked throwing mud at people's faces do you know well you know this is the thing right like I understand that Chicago is such a huge <laughs> fucking influence and in like what sure. I like and don't like. Sure. And yet that's no like I also understand how problematic that is, right? Because huh. I, Chicago is a city that does not like love me back. You know what I mean? And what do you mean? Well, I mean like so for those of you that don't know, Chicago is now the fourth largest city in the country. Houston has recently surpassed it and it surpassed us mostly because uh a lot of black people have been migrating out of the city of Chicago and they've been migrating out of the city of Chicago because Rahm Emanuel is closing down the schools because uh, their neighborhoods are the neighborhoods where violence are concentrated. You know what I'm saying? And so it's a very, it's it's like kind of like an abusive relationship sure. of sorts. It's a, a relationship where like, the, the Mexican neighborhoods are also the neighborhoods that get gentrified the quickest, mm. you know what I mean? And so I don't really, 
I sh- yeah. like I understand that I shouldn't love Chicago as much as I do. Or that love is complicated. Or that love is complicated and that there's violence in that relationship. You know what I mean? Sure. But but I but I do and if like Chicago like if something is like if you want if you want to market towards me, all you have to do is put like I know. <laughs> Throw Chicago on it. Yeah, be and like for, right. I'm sorry, I'm cutting you off. Yeah. So so that makes that question interesting of like that grade school question of like what well, because like people love America for the same reason. They're taught like America good, everything else bad. You know what I'm saying? And I have like a similar relationship with mm-hmm. the United States of Chicago, <laughs> which is like Chicago good everywhere else. What's that? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> uh, so we're going to pivot to, uh, <laughs> don't worry about time. Yeah. We're good. We're good. We're good. We're good. I'm interested. I'm All right. We've got so many questions. Yeah. Uh, so but the first question, you got to jump. Uh, Willie. What's on your mind? Mm. Ah, you know, like this, the level of conversation and shit in terms of, with this Ruby question, the level of appropriation, mm. that's a big conversation right now in mm. all arts and culture, right? How much is allowed? How much is not allowed, right? And then there's a bigger question that there's a lot of people questioning the role of poetry in the world today. Mm. And a lot of that conversation is happening with mostly academics, and shit, mm. right? So after Trump got elected, that was just a bum rush of all kinds of poetry and mm. anthologies that kind of responded to this election. I'm interested in that. How are you going to speak to Chicago? Because you might have to leave Chicago for a little bit yeah. to actually have that conversation with Chicago. Mm. You know, the level of interrogation is key because you're always in constant questioning, mm. you know. One of the things that I've been thinking about, having spent a lot of time standing on like street corners and shit in East Harlem, is like, what happens when it's like 129 degrees and shit? When it's like, <laughs> like in Pakistan and shit, like mm-hmm. if you have to be outside and it's hitting 130, mm-hmm. and we're coming close to that, mm-hmm. like, what is the world gonna look like when it's shimmering like that? Wow. Right? Like, how are you gonna respond to that? either as an artist or as a human being in terms of your survival instincts. So that's something on my mind. You know, people, mm. VPNs are on my mind and shit. They start closing down all types of internet systems and just closing them down and you can't communicate. Wait, what so is that? In China, VPNs, so they mm. have like, for instance, they'll take a day and they'll just close down the whole internet system and you can't communicate out. So these kind of alternative networks, right? Yeah. And then speaking about alternative shit, now like they have, close it down as they, a like an authoritarian, yeah, an authoritarian way of like way. a little That's too right. much. Nothing comes cool in, nothing goes out. Gotcha. Right. So you take that with 129 degrees, like you know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> yeah. like how that that how's that gonna look? That environment. So I'm I'm starting to kind of question about how things are going to look. Like mm. we talking about this Trump dude. I mean, recently there was an article. They listed all the lies. This dude has told. Yeah. Now, if there's that many lies in someone's life and shit, there has to be more lies below those lies, of right? Course. Yeah. So uh, this this yeah. is where I go back to 1984. So 1984, they talk about how the only way you can sustain a government that is that authoritarian, their authoritarian, is if you understand that. One, you have to be so loyal that you at one commit to whatever the person says. And then to forget the part of you that is like, well, I know that's a lie. You know mm. what I mean? Like you have to be able to do both. You have to both commit un- like 
you know, without question to whatever that person, whatever the authoritarian figure says. Mm -hmm. And you have to be, you have to like somehow both remember what they said and forget whatever you thought you knew. You know what I mean? You have to be able to do both those things. And so like the idea of like, when I read that book and I see like Trump and all of his lies, like I understand how people can buy into this idea of that there's alternative facts that there's the facts and then there's the alternative facts because they're both erasing and you know what i'm saying they're Mm -hmm. erasing the truth of the moment and holding up whatever trump says is the truth Mm. which then becomes the only truth you Mm -hmm. know what i'm saying it's like they're doing both those things at the same time yeah 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 i get the impression that there are at least half the country if not more are not doing the interrogation necessary Yeah, no. And then about another third of that is like saying, oh, well, that story sounds pretty good. And the megaphone is pretty brain dead anyway. So it's nice and loud. So I'm like, yeah, yeah, And then there's like a sliver and shit that's in constant questioning mode. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is that a George Saunders record? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. You got right. that, that Yeah, right. So the louder you speak, the I'm going to hear you. Mm. I'm going to listen. Mm-hmm. You know, so... Shit, shit like that's been in my mind, especially coming back to New York. The trains are fucked up in New York, the bro. Trains I'm like, are yo, it took me like, like, like I get a child that they like. So I'm thinking about the breakdown of what you think is home. Mm. Wow. Right. So what you yeah. define as home when that starts breaking down. So you're from yeah. Chicago, yeah, bro. I'm I know, from New I York, know that shit and is I'm, coming I was born me. and raised in New York, and I'm I'm walking around my neighborhood, and I'm like, I recognize the building, but where they are just the faces? Up the whole yeah. food. Yes. On 125th Street. Yeah, yeah. on 125th Street. Oh, so yeah, on Lennox, 125th Street. Are you serious? Yeah, man. Yeah. So it's been a trip, you know? Ugh. It's been a trip that way, just coming back to New York. Like, and where are the faces? Where are the faces, bro? I'm, mm. I'm trying to find them, and I can't yeah. find them. On occasion, you find one, you know, buying his lotto tickets and yeah, shit. Yeah, yeah. You grew up yeah. with him, you know, yeah. be like, yo, I'm getting a new kidney in a week. I'm like, yeah. damn. What? Yeah. I think of that, you have that poem that's like, I knew something was up when, I forget his name right now, but like stopped. Satan stopped singing the blues in front of Studio Museum of Holland, yeah. man. There used to be a guy who used to sing the blues in front of the mm. Studio Museum of Holland. They call him Satan. Mm. There's a YouTube, uh, YouTube movie. I don't know which one. It's one of those documentary movies and yeah. shit. And they, they visit Harlem. Of course, they walk to 125th Street. Lord. You can see Satan in one of those clips. Damn. Mm. Yeah. So what, so... Uh, Tell us about your childhood. What was it like? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know? I mean, talking about shit we love, right? Like, yeah. interrogate. So, where did, did you grow you up in New York? I grew up we in East Harlem. Where in East Harlem? 119th Street for a few years, and then we were part of that kind of expansion into the projects, which was okay. supposed to be kind of a upwardly mobile mm. kind of movement, right? And once you took all those families from those little townhouses and tenements and all that, the family dynamic broke apart because most of the men went off to war mm-hmm. by the 70s. So you had all these single mothers living in the housing projects. So I grew up in Upaca housing on okay. 122nd and Lex. Wow. And um, so I'm a post-civil rights baby. When I was living here in New York, I lived on 122nd and Lex. Yeah. I lived on, there's that big... 1990, but they call yeah, it something yeah. different now. What they call it, the Miles or some shit like that? Some shit like, shit that? like yeah. that. I know the Miles. The Miles, yeah, yeah. They call it the Miles, so there's like a love, yeah. That's yeah, so that, that, That's where yeah. you live? Nah, I lived inside of the, inside. the, the housing okay. project okay. on 122nd yeah, yeah, Street, yeah, near yeah. the train track. Wow. wow. And so, 
I was a, you know, I didn't know about Gwendolyn Brooks, but I knew enough to open my window and shit and just kind of look yeah. for all, all the all the scenes. So, wow. like, if you open the window, Whew. all you had to do was just listen, huh. and you could the narratives would just come rolling in, yeah, yeah. based on the sound. I grew up singing black power chants and we didn't know they were black power chants all those umgawa black power songs and shit like we'd be you didn't know camp. oh nah, the hell no i didn't know that shit until i got older was, i didn't know just... what it was it shit sounded good so we're <laughs> <laughs> marching down the street and shit you know i'm just like we're marching down the street and we all in unison yeah. and this feels pretty good and yeah. we just had a free lunch you know what i'm saying <laughs> i'm like this is pretty good yeah and then the 80s came and y'all already know i mean by that point Reagan era America, man. Yeah. Obliterated Damn. most of where I grew up. So if you're talking about families breaking down exponentially, now we're talking about communities. Mm -hmm. So whereas, you know, your whole infrastructure for what you needed as a family, everything from, you know, the little bodega on the corner to your yeah. botanic got to buy your potions and shit yeah, for yeah. your fucking number hall to, you know, yeah, play yeah. that number you were dreaming about, your barbershop, all that was in one block. All that started to disappear. Wow. And so, and then after that, I came down to Brooklyn of all places and shit. So I just, I had found an apartment in Brooklyn, but I still have family uptown. When did you move to Brooklyn? 99, 2000. So I'm in wow. Crown Heights. Okay. So I seen Crown Heights go from, you know, the biggie era, basically. Yeah, yeah. And all that kind of political turmoil, turmoil that's still happening in many ways to what it is now, which is like hips to heaven, yeah. you know, wine shop, sushi, all that coming yeah. through, you know? So, but that's the only thing I think that concerns me about, I mean, there's a few things that concern me about the level of gentrification that's going on in New York City is the statement that it seems to be making on the devaluation of black life. When I say black life, I mean brown life too and shit. So you're like, suddenly you got eyes in the sky. Suddenly you got a lot more patrols. And so that's to say that when most of these young white kids who were coming through and different level tax brackets and so on were not here, that means that when we were killing each other, it was all right. Right? So as I'm getting older, you know, a lot of the stuff that my tradition and my lineage told us, this is what you need to pay attention to, it's all happening. Mm -hmm. You know? And so how the work speaks to that is kind of interesting at this point, you know? Mm. Yeah, man. So the city is, is something. I, I, I dig the relationship with Chicago because I'm the same way about New York. But I teach in New Hampshire. So picture me and shit, you know, in my little study and shit on the third floor of our dormitory <laughs> apartment. Yeah. And I got these trees and shit looking at it, But what am I thinking about? Lexington Avenue. Yeah. Always. Yeah. And before you moved to Brooklyn, I mean, I'm like filling in the gaps. Yeah, yeah. Smoking Lovely, yeah, which yeah. is a book that I've just... My copy is disheveled and like ripped and broken. I've read it so many times. No, like, you're the one person I know could honestly say you read the book. I mean, let me have some. Fuck out of here. Hey, get that bullshit out of here. We're not letting that stand. We're not letting that stand on the podcast. Let me tell you something, Willie. Willie has this theory that like nobody read Smoke and this is literally the only book that you look up on Amazon and it costs a hundred and ten dollars. Okay, it's out of print and it is fucking in demand. Okay, but so much. I mean, I'm thinking of a lot of different poems, but I feel like there's this poem. Crazy Bunch Barbecue at Jefferson Park where it's right. like 
you know, I, I tried to brush sauce on an extra chicken leg. Phil had barbecue on the grill. He slapped my hand and said, yo, go do something. I got this. I'm the chef. You're yeah, the poet. Yeah, yeah. You know, like, yeah. and then proceeds to say, like, and then he proceeds to say, like, he's like, talk about how you're glad to be here. Look at that kid, uh, like, running circles around second base. Talk about how the wind is trying to take his red balloon. He got like, all poet. Yeah, he's like, <laughs> says the most poetic thing in the poem, right? right he's right, like, right. I know what you're about. Right. Poet. <laughs> right? Like, and I'm curious about, like, the identity of poet within the realm. Because in that poem, it's like, Jerry is the one with the jokes. Phil is the cook and Willie's the poet. Mm-hmm. And like, how when did you that... become the poet? Yeah, like, oh, that's when a great question. That your... When did you ever see that movie? You from Chicago? You seen Cooley High? Of course. Oh, wow. Cooley High. So, preacher. Yeah. I was the preacher <laughs> <laughs> in the group. So, you know, your boys would be like, they have a, like a little moral dilemma and shit. You'd be the one to co sign it. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> be like, you know what I'm saying? That's to you. They'd be like, yo, man, t- tell me about right or wrong right here. You know what I'm saying? So, somehow. Because somehow as a poet, you knew more about the world. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know. And so, but it started early because, you know, when you're hanging out, it's a very kind of hetero milieu, right? In many ways, right? And there's a dude who got all the girls. Mm-hmm. There's a dude who runs fast. Mm-hmm. There's a dude who can knock you out and shit in two punches. There's a dude who's like the best thief ever and shit. He's always in front of the store counting his money. You know what I'm saying? Like, and you have none of that. So. Mm. So once you started writing poetry, and I started writing poetry like by middle school, mm. um, and then when that first book came out, I have finally they, I would walk down Lexington and be like, "Yo, there's that dude from Lexington." Wait, That's were you dude. the poet before yeah. then, or when were you the poet when the book came out? When the book came when out, it was official out. because okay. by this point, my boys would be like, "Yo, look at the look at the book pop yeah. yeah. right? yeah, 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 look at the dime. Like he said, there's a there's a there's a there's a poem that takes place in a takeout joint and where Nickel Cross is not yeah. the kid. Oh, the, the kid comes into the store yeah, yeah. and he hears uh, something going the on the walkie talkie and shit. And so he's ordering Egg Fu Young and he hears the, the, the crime that just happened and he hears the name. He's like, he's oh, like oh shit, oh, that's, that's my, my cousin. cousin. And he runs out of the takeout. So when the book came out, they used to play the CD because it came out with a CD. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that's right. To, I yeah, forgot about that. That's to, right. They used yeah. to play it in the barbershop where I used to get my No, yeah, 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 yeah. That's yeah. the highest accolade yeah. you could get. That's the dream, bro. So one of the dudes that was in the barbershop saw me walking down Lexington <laughs> Avenue one day. He said, oh, shit, that's <laughs> my cousin. You know oh, my God. Hey, keep walking. So that was the level of relationship I had with my community. Wow. You know, as a poet. Because without exaggeration, as a 50-year-old poet right now, I could tell you I wrote most of those poems on the corner of 123rd Lex, mm-hmm. without question, right? Mm-hmm. Like, just listening and mm-hmm. kind of living in that moment, you know? Yeah. So that was that's what it was like to be a poet and the crew and sometimes I used to take some of them down to the New Yorican with me and shit you yeah? know yeah yeah what did they think when you took them they down were like, to the New York they were like yo we ready to go back up town like, <laughs> they, they were like yo let's go back up town I, I have so many questions I, you know yeah. one uh, Patrick Rosal has this poem about this time you took him out you, yeah. know, you took him out you know somewhere on the, in East Harlem yeah. and he talks about like how important it is to write not just about like 
the the Trump figures who are always threatening our existence. You know what I mean? But also to write about like the community, the people that like get you through, the people that like yeah. take you to Uptown and show you where like the good yeah. drinks, the good the food, this where the sweetness is, right? Yeah. And so I guess I'm wondering like when did that, when did you start bringing people uptown or like what how what what has been your relationship with other poets and when did you start to embrace them as part of your community in addition to like your people in these yeah, that's a good question you know I'm fond of saying that I only like hanging out with poets too much and shit right. yeah you know what I'm saying like I rather hang out with bar owners and yeah, shit yeah, yeah. Or, you know but truth be told a lot of my good friends are poets like mm. somebody like Patrick and shit. right and um, there's a sense that I like to roll with poets I can hang out with. Yeah. Mm. Like a crew and shit, mm-hmm. you know, like I grew up with. Yeah. Patrick is one of those poets for me. It's like, yo, let's go town, and, because that means what I'm telling him is like, yo, you know, I want you to see me like outside of well, you this poet outside yeah. of like yeah at the new school, at the new reading school at the podium. Shit, you know, like I want you to hang out and shit. You yeah. know, yeah. I have a question about yeah. that. Off of that, which I think is so smart. Um, so I was talking mm. with you know a good number of my friends are poets, like John Jose. Kamon, Safia, Mega, and with me and Kamon and Safia and Mega, we were talking like, yo, it just happened to be poetry. Like, it probably would have been anything, but we would have just been friends. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Like, let's say we weren't poets at the end of the day. Let's say that that was not our thing. Let's say that we were all just going to be chefs, you know? But we would have all just been friends. Like, when we get together... Yeah, we geek out about poems, but we talk about ourselves, which we are not poems. Mm, <laughs> so do wow. you feel that that's that? Because for me, that's the only time I bring someone into my home is when I feel like, and that's actually my new barometer for you get to come to my house, mm. is if like you would be my friend even if I never wrote another thing ever. Mm, wow. Even if I never spoke another thing ever, you'd still be my dude. You know, Even if I never publish another book again, you'd be my dude, right? Is that, like, do you have, like, a feeling, like... Because I feel like with Pat, not knowing him super well, but knowing both of y'all in some estimation, y'all probably would be friends even if, like, you know what I'm saying? Probably. Even if you were just, like, <laughs> yeah. you know, doing some other shit. Yeah. Like, is, is... Do you... What I'm saying is this. There are probably a lot of people that would want to hang out with you in East Harlem. Like, after reading your book, like, oh, my God, I want to see the East Island that Willie has. You know what I mean? And, like, I know for me, there's a lot of people that have come into my life, like, you know, where's that roach you killed in Brooklyn? And it's, like, mm. dead. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, it's just, like, like they want to hang out with the poet that's Willie, but not the Willie that's Willie. Right. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you how do you hear for that? Because you have an ear, yo. Like, yeah. you know? I like to, like, if I go uptown with one of my, you know, friends in my, like, poet life and shit. Yeah. And they, I'm walking down the street, and all, and they hear, yo, pop. <laughs> as soon as they hear that, they already know I just stopped being Willie. Why? Because now I'm in front of the people that you mm. can't front on, right? Mm. Like, mm. There's a level of our past, like friends, mm. who kind of know us mm-hmm. for our truth yeah. in that moment, and you can't fake it. Yeah. Now you get on the train, go downtown, shit. You can fake Jacks all you want, you know what <laughs> I'm saying? Mm. But the goal is to kind of bridge that that gap, I think. Mm. But coming back uptown is for me always like a foundation. Yeah. Wow. And I can't stray far from it. Mm. No matter if I don't see any of those people anymore that I used to hang out with, but I'm starting to write about more. Mm. You know? I think about that all the time with my friends from high school. Where yeah. like yeah. I'm like I am 
hell bent on grow. Like I want to grow, and yet somehow like I don't want to grow in a way that makes me unrecognizable to mm-hmm. the people who knew me before. You know, like before I left mm-hmm. Cincinnati. Like yeah, and not that they're like experts on like what's good or bad or anything like that but there is like a part of me before I knew anything (laughs) that I think is like at like the core is pure and that I like want to still be recognized you know yeah yeah I think there's a the level of that moment where you can't distinguish between right and wrong is where that part of my life kind of plays Mm. out because what you do to survive or feed your family and, you know, all those things. You have to be able to, in many ways, to be loved, to be in a judgment-free space. Yeah. You know, and that's important. Yeah. I get that when I go uptown, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, whereas in some other circles, sometimes that's not. The case. You mean like it's a longer history, so it's, it's a, a long, stronger it's a, it's like a, it's brick a, yeah, building where you're like I can history. say like, anything. If I've known you since you were five, listen, we were five. That's different than somebody I met when I was thirty. Yeah. You know right. what I'm saying? And so that kind of relationship, that's on that's a relationship on a strength. Like, mm. you know, I I think um, one of the things that I like and that kind of propelled me into what I'm working on now is that. Uh, Illmatic documentary. You seen this? Mm-hmm. Love that documentary. Joint? Yeah, I love that documentary. So I'm feeling the PTSD that's going through the work, right? So I'm looking that's at a the sad poems. documentary. Yeah, I'm mm-hmm. looking at the the shit made me cry. I was yeah, like, I'm looking at. Have y'all seen it? Yeah. I'm yeah. looking at what There's a we experienced. Scene where like you got Jungle, who's Nas's brother, yeah. and he's like looking at the, you know, the album booklet, and it has the pictures of everybody who like came. You know, down from Queensbridge to like be in the picture for the for the CD manual, and Jungle is going through it, and he's like, "That person's dead. That person's in jail. That person's dead. That person's serving a life sentence. That person's dead, dead, dead." And there's like two kids, and he's like, "They're in." You know what I mean? Like it's it's a sad moment where you're like, "This is a moment." In, like when they're taking the picture, it's a moment of great hope. Nas is releasing this album. Right. Yeah. It's all about you know what I mean. Like it's a yeah. book for Queensbridge, and yet that album, like, you know, correct me if you see it differently. But I, when I heard that, I was like, damn, this album. And no matter how great Nas is as an artist, like he can't save no. everyone in this picture. No, he can't. Man. He can't help them. Yeah, I think where I came in at that point was. Jungle's walking down a pathway in the Queensbridge houses and he got his little entourage with him. Mm-hmm. He's smoking a blunt. Yeah. He got his Yankee cap with a Yankee cap. He got a tank top on, matching <laughs> Nikes and yeah. shorts and shit. And, and he got his little plastic cup of Hennessy and he's walking down the pathway. He's surrounded by his little crew and they stop in front of a empty bench and they point to an empty bench and say, that's where it happened. Mm. That's where they kill ill will. Yeah. Now, at that point, for me, like Jungle became a much more interesting kind of character than Nas himself. In many oh ways, yeah, in Jungle is the most interesting the story character in that movie. Capacity. And at the end of the movie, I remember just jumping up and I hugged my wife. I was crying. I was like, I'm back. And I was like, I don't know for what. <laughs> and I was like, yo, I ran, yo, I ran to my notebook and all I heard was my boy Lo saying, yo, when are you going to write the, about the crew? Wow. And I said, you remember that was the summer of Up Rock, Jesus Pieces, Two for Five, Bamboo, Pillow Bags, and the Willie Bobo was up to 10. And someone said that the signs was dropped on our summer. I was off and running. 
I swear to God, yo, I was off and running Sunday because there was, there was a part of me that just felt like, all right, now I know who's asking for the story. Wow. Woo. That. And you yeah. have to listen for that. Once they ask you for the story, you know how to tell yes. it. You're right about that movie, though, because Nas, the, all the clips of Nas, he's like in a studio watching yeah. the scene in Queens, but like from a mansion. You know what I mean? He's yeah. like so far removed, whereas like Jungle's like yeah. there. He's, he's still there. On the damn street. Yeah. yeah. So. Also, like on that album, Ill Will Rest in Peace, it's just like a quick sound bite. If you're listening to that album, you just bought it. You're like, oh, well, rest of the, you just think of it like a lyric that you yeah. brush over and then you're on to the next song, right? Okay. And you forget that but that so spirit huge. is what is like so what? sitting so underneath huge. it and yes. holding up the whole artistic right. message. I mean, I just think, not to keep bringing it back to Crazy Bunch Barbecue at Jefferson Park, but that poem starts with, this is definitely for the brothers who ain't here, yeah. who would have said I had to write a poem about, about yeah. this get-together. Yeah. And it yeah. comes right back at the end. Like, yeah. this is, if you hear nothing else in this poem, this is what you need to know. Yeah. That this is like yeah. for them. I thought, man, I thought we were gonna live forever, man. Whoo, whoo. Yeah. It was, oh yeah. Cause my dad from like in the Bronx, like around ish where you from, around the same time where you from, and he thought he was gonna die every day. Oh yeah, I'm surprised I lasted right. fifty. <laughs> right. For sure. Yeah. Uh, I think in terms of those like gilded moments, those oh. moments where they kind of sure they just last forever. Forever. Like, yeah. You know. If this is, You're lucky if, it if could you be get like one this. in those moments. Yes, right. Moment, That's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, yeah. Oh, my yeah. goodness. Yeah. Like, it's so interesting. And we talked about this briefly at Cave at the, two years ago. Yeah. Um, but just that, like, um, I don't know, the way that you tell things, to these stories and the names, it reminds me so much of how my father would That's tell right. stories. Because he, you know, is an up-and-coming like, DJ in the Bronx when hip-hop was just beginning. And he talked about his friends, like, oh, Phase 2 and, like, uh, me and Richie DJ in the party, like, and fuck Cool Herc, I don't fuck with him. Like, yeah. you know, like, yeah. they had the competing, right? And so I think in a sense, like, I, I get the things where you're like, oh, no, I'll live forever. Because Phase 2 is, like, one of the biggest graph artists period yeah, yeah. and like we always come to my dad's crib and just like tag everything in the in the bathroom just yeah. tag everything and so the things that made phase two feel like he was gonna live forever was like the subway cars and it's like if i could just hold this car right. like, my name's on this car you know right. and like my dad like they would call him the kid you know and and how beautiful is that right. it like how peter pan lived forever is that and even like ill will it's like not only is it a great fucking name, but it's like, you could never wish that upon someone. You could always wish that upon someone. But you're wishing for ill will, you know? Like, right. that's a wishful thing. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, I, when you think about the people you're writing for, like, do you, th what in the names? I'm obsessed with these names, mm -hmm. right? Like, mm -hmm. were you all, like, you're Willie, but you're also Pop, right? Yeah. Like, what were the other names' names? Skinicky. <laughs> what? <laughs> what? <laughs> Skinicky. <laughs> so we were playing. We were playing basketball, uh -huh. and there was a dude whose name was Tommy. They call him Loco Tommy. Okay. So he's playing the announcer, the sports announcer. Yeah, yeah. So it's me and Vic, and he used to call Vic Radar, right? And he used to call everybody uh, had a nickname. Back everybody, then? everybody has a nickname. You get two or three of them okay. in a lifetime, really, okay. right? And she's so, and then. Uh, David, they called him old ass because he always had back problems. <laughs> <laughs> so, 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 they called him old ass. Right? 
So I was still Papo and shit, but I was a lanky, doofy, biggie, buck tooth, like teenage kid. Yeah. Yeah. Real like, you know, I try to be as graceful as I can and shit. Right. And so he say, uh, radar takes the jump shot, takes the jump shot, old ass gets the rebound, goes up, <laughs> he goes up, right? He's like, <laughs> he goes, old ass gets the shot, old ass, old ass, passes on the radar, radar looks for shot, passes it, he passes it to Skin Nicky. When he said Skin Nicky, everybody started laughing. <laughs> he was talking about me. And he was referring to this old, he was referring to this old Nets player named Mike Jeminski. What the What so everybody drops. It was like somebody dunking and shit. Everybody go, oh shit, and stop the game for at least a few minutes. And he said, you heard anything? Just call him Skinnicky, yo. And so the next day, I'm coming home from school. Right. I used to go to school downtown, yeah. and I get off on 125th Street in Lexington. No sooner than I get to 123rd in Lexington, you hear, yo, Skinnicky. That was it. That's one of my AKs and shit. That's awesome. Yeah, so everybody got a nickname. Everyone got a nickname. Yeah. Yeah. And it was usually the same dude who gave you the nicknames, you know? So there was like a point person? There's a point person (laughs) for the nomenclature. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And it's like this shorthand. It's like language on language on language. Like my dad, he was like, he would say stuff like, yeah, I was walking around with Richie and Phase 2 and, you know, all the other people. And then he'd be like, yeah, and we ran into Worm and be like, ah, oh, shit, Worm. And yeah. It's like where Worm at? Where he always at? Right. That bench, right? You know, not moving from that. It's right. the same, right? And and so like when you when I hear like, oh well, that's where it happened for Worm. Like that's where it always was. That's where it always was. You know, and so I feel like, and I'm and like, what a perfect name for that. Like just Worm. Right. You know, and and I feel like like. I just want I just want to see pages of these names, man. Yeah, like man. they're so perfect. Yeah. And I feel like in me being like my growing up, you could just only barely stand the one name. Mm. You know what I mean? Like right. you could barely stand the one name your parents gave you. Right. And you never want to hear like your inside the house nickname yeah. outside the house. You know, like my right. mom well, always called me Z. Everyone in the family Z. Everybody Z. Anyone and so now anyone who is close close to me, I'll notice they just flip in the Z without my ever saying it right. you know and it's kind of like this light switch it's like this thing i it's my secret thing when mm. i was not that i get to know <laughs> right 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 and you know, if any of y'all from this just listening to this just call me z out of nowhere i'll know the difference but <laughs> it's like preemptive z right you know preemptive z is not cool but like you know my dad's name is craig where are you gonna get the kid like these are the names that last forever these this is last forever right. And so yeah, so go ahead. I'm I'm wondering like now you're you're the radio you're like yeah. you play the sports announcer in a way because you're the poet. So mm-hmm. you're writing all these stories and you name people and you're like you know what I mean, radar and and whatever, you know what I mean? And so how do you what is it like for you now to be the one who's in I don't want to say in charge of these stories, you know what I mean? But like you're you're the one like the chorus. Yeah, you're the you're the you're the one. You're yeah. you're the namer. You're the giver of names now. You know, one of my mentors, uh, Raymond R. Patterson. He was a blues poet. They called him. He wrote a, a, a poem called uh, I think it's Twenty Six Ways of Looking at a Black Man. It's called yeah. Anthology. Uh-huh. So I was a student at City College for like a year, and he was my my mentor. And he sent me a letter in '93 that I found shortly right before I moved up to New Hampshire in 2013. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm cleaning out my files and he sends me a letter. He tells me a couple of things. Number one, as poets, like when you, when you write from those vantage points, you are in many ways keeping the memory of your tribe. Oof, right? So that's one thing. The other thing is about the whole idea of people knowing us for our authenticity at that age, for whoever we are that we can't really run from, is that the growth, and this is part of what I think you were alluding to earlier with the high school friends, John, is that as you start changing, you start going farther and further away. Yeah. Mm. And part of the growth that Raymond told me says you're going to have to let go. He was talking more about literary influence, mm. but that could be applied to life mm-hmm. changes. Mm. Totally. So you're going to have to let go, but part of growing is that sometimes you have to do it in the dark. And he hit me with that, yo. And I was on my way to New Hampshire. And I was like, damn. You know? Because now I'm really like, my life is is changing now. So how am I going to relate to the crazy bunch? 123rd Street, East Harlem. Because now they can only live in my memory. The challenge then becomes is, you can't romanticize all that no. shit. Right? right. So what level of truth are you ready to approach? Mm-hmm. And what can you expand on? I remember, and we can cut this out if you don't, it, like, uh, yeah, yeah, go but for I it. just want to put it out there. Like when you came to Bailey House and you read Where I'm From, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like you were reading a 20-year-old poem or whatever it was, you know? And there are all these adults in that room who are like, we love, you know, they just loved the poem. They fucking like got it and they saw it and they loved it. And I remember you being like, somebody asked you a question after it and you were like, and something that's really, really hard for me is that I look out and I see the same thing, you know? Mm. And like, I don't know exactly what the question is, but I guess it's like, you know, what is your relationship to documentation and change is it something that you're thinking of as you document or is it something that you're not thinking of you're just like telling a story and how it and and like i mean that was such a you know like nuanced complicated moment that i'm not like i I don't think i could represent it in the question Mm -hmm. but i feel like it was like a, a specific moment in time that feels like relevant to hear you talk about yeah i think uh it's part of the Part of the sadness is that a lot of the conditions, whether it's disenfranchisement, miseducation, that lead to a lot of the images that came up in the work are still there. Mm. And so that's when it gets a little discouraging where you come back and you're saying, well, damn, whatever system is in place is working really, really well right now, you know? Mm. So how do you address that? Well, in terms of what we do as writers I think is I try to framework it with a story so let's say you take something like Cooley High mm-hmm. there's an arc to it and it oh, takes place over the course of a weekend but there's one moment that changes them forever I'm interested in that moment like right before yeah. you know we were still young we were still mm. more or less you want to say innocent even yeah. though we've been exposed to a level of pathology that none of us could really articulate but only took as a kind of natural circumstance in yeah. which we live right 
then that moment that changes us forever. We can never look at the world the same way. Yeah. I'm interested in that moment. Or even at yourself the same way. That's right. Because that's what the level of interrogation starts to kind of come in. Who yeah. was I in that moment? Yeah. This is coming from me. I was the poet in the crew. I was there when someone had a heart broken. I was there when someone's brother died. I was there when somebody was being prepared. I was there at the Sweet 16. I was there at the baptism. And then we came back and broke night. And then I was there when we went to the pool in the morning. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, it just yeah. keeps on and on yeah. and on. You can encapsulate a whole tribe within 24 hours. Oh, Yo, fam. Oh, my God. Okay. I have a question. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> This is my entire philosophy that's on everything. Yeah. Like ev what you just said, that's everything to me. Do you write plays? I started when I went to LIU and shit. I'm like, you know, fuck poetry. I ain't no I'm serious. Yeah, I'm like, you know, fuck poetry. I'm going to LIU. I'm get my MFA. But yeah. I'm gonna try some playwriting. And yeah. Shit. So I was studying with Jessica Hagedorn, and mm -hmm. so I had submitted a monologue. Mm. And she said, poet, you have to start writing plays, exclamation mark, like right away. So I've, I've been yeah. interested in, in, in doing that. But yeah. I can only do one thing. At, I can only work on one no, thing at a time. Too, the same way. But yeah. I, the next thing I want to do, I think, is some prose. Yeah. And then after that, I'll, the play I do for fun. Yeah. You know what it I'm saying? Like, because I'm not, I don't go to school for it or any of that. Like, I just do for fun. So if I'm bugging out and shit my desk and I'm hearing different people talking and yeah, shit yeah. i do that shit out loud you know what i mean yeah. <laughs> you know just have fun with it yeah so i'm, I'm halfway through something right now in terms of, of a play and of oh. course when you write plays and shit you always got six more ideas on the back you burner do. coming right, through right, yeah right. it's such a friendly kind of venue for ideas where yeah. poems are kind of different that way. i can't write poems unless i know the book mm. wow it's different That's so i can't write one-offs and shit did, well, you, did you have that thought even when you were a young poet? Did you know? Were you writing towards books even? Yeah. Wow. Yeah, book for the first book I think was a little different. Okay. Once I saw that there was a few poems that took place in the same block, I already knew that this book was about a place. Okay. And then after that, you know, I was going all over the place with the next one, but I kind of knew what you I know. wanted to do. Yeah. And then after that, I had a definitive persona with Shorty, like a musician. Yeah. So I was able to kind of release myself of the pressure of always writing about that first person and shit. Mm. And mm. the voice just took off. Will you tell the story of that, of like the speaker in that book in yeah. Shorty Barmore? Yeah. Sure. Um, so I was in, a, I was at LIU. So now by this point, I'm in year one or two of my MFA. Mm -hmm. I want to do it in two. No, I'm good. Thank you. And then, uh, so, I said, fuck it. You know, if I'm going to try to get a job as a teacher, which has always been the plan, right? I might as well get this MFA in poetry. I'm already two books in, right? So, let me go for it. Mm -hmm. So, someone says, uh, you should write about, let's write about music. And I remember the lines came up there. Uh, all I can remember between first and last track is how I replied to all those voice sweet pretty boys. I said, oh shit, who the fuck is that? That was my uncle, right? Because uh, I never met my uncle, but what we do, whether we want to believe it or not, like we're always talking to ghosts, right? Like that's, that's what happens, right? Yeah. So the ghost comes, he comes to visit you in a class, and when that voice comes, you can't say, oh no, that's not my voice. <laughs> 
and stop. You got to run with that shit. And you got to go wherever it's going to take you, even though, even if it's a fucking netherworld, right? And you got to go with it. Yeah. The joy of it was that if it's a netherworld, then fuck it. I'm going to guide him. I'm going to guide him through this world. He's dying. I'm going to ask him one question. And he's just going to start telling me the story of when he recorded and then we're going to throw in a love interest there, right? We're going to bring up that singular love because we all have that in many ways. Mm. And then we're going to bring in the unidentified poet who tries to write the poem seven different times. We've all been there, right? You right. try to write that same poem. And it was like being in a studio session. So you weren't thinking of yourself as that poet? Not like when he's quite the poet, yet. Not quite not yet. You. But as soon as he said poet... I was like, fuck it. Yeah. <laughs> Let me not even try to fuck it. You know what I'm saying? You know? You're like, you got me. You got me. That's what I had. Yeah, because the speaker is just like kind of clowning you the whole yeah. book. The whole book. <laughs> but, you know, it was the most fun I had, right? Like, and I put all these people in it. Is that know? book the most fun you've had yeah. writing a book? Yeah. Wow. wow. Easily. Yeah. I mean, from the title, you could hear it. Yeah. Shorty Bon Bon. Yeah. Shorty Bon Bon. Like, That's a great fucking title. You don't not have fun with that person. Oh, yeah. I had a ball. Yeah. And I mean, like... Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go for it. No, yeah. I just... Um, it's really moving to hear you talk about this because I feel like um, in all the institutions that uh, poetry lives, Slam, MFA, Landia, high school, whatever. Tumblr. Tumblr, Instagram, um, it's, yeah. you know, in, in, and the street. SoundCloud, you know what I mean? Yeah. Sound, yeah, a very legitimate place for fucking. <laughs> Evidently, but poets. but all these all these places, right? I think uh, they thoroughly discount the spirit. Mm. Spirit this is what you're talking about, like hearing, catching. You know, I was talking with Desiree Bailey the other night. Shout out to Desiree Bailey. Always, um, always. Um, we were talking about. Right, so the, the reason I write plays and the reason I write poems sound incredibly of lineage with the reason you do any of the shit that you do, right? <laughs> it's like I heard a voice I couldn't shake, right? Like I, you know, and, and I couldn't, I couldn't stop. And whether I have fun with it or not, whether I'm a guide through the underworld or, or just like at the party, you know? And when I, I talked to Desiree about it and I was like, yeah, sometimes when I read your work, the word isn't scary, but I'm scared because it's like so removed from this joyful person I know. Mm. But it sounds like someone else like came in, shook you and left. And she's like, well, that's what happens. Wow. And when you read it, like when I read that poem earlier, every time I read it, I'm like, Argh! like, I'm so angry. It's anguish. Yeah. And I remember like around that time. I found a picture of my grandfather, my white grandfather, James Barnes. He died running the San Diego Marathon. Mm -hmm. And the picture is of him that day running the San Diego Marathon. And I put like candles around it and inadvertently was honoring this man. But then that comes out, which is just like livid, like disgusted, you know, like I I'm nothing but your cursed extension. Mm -hmm. Like, I don't think that of myself, but he might think that of me. And I often think about him. Did he expect to have black-looking grandchildren? Probably not. Did he expect to have black-looking children? Probably not. Did he expect to get fired from every job he had because he had a black wife? Probably not. But he did. You know what I mean? So I, I think without forcing it and without making like tacky mystic fad of it, 
like, do you think there's room in these spheres where poetry has decided or we've decided to make it live to talk about this very heightened spiritual listening? Mm-hmm. I mean, it depends on the kind of poet you are, right? Sure. So that's part of it. But I think for me that, yeah, I, in many ways I become a medium for mm. that experience. I become a medium for the language. I become kind of almost like a portal, right? So if I go to a school and I go to a school to as a visiting poet, let's say, and it's a high school, and all these kids have been thrown out of every high school they've been to. Mm-hmm. This is their last chance. I get there at 9 o'clock in the morning. I set the classroom up in a circle. I get one kid, he comes in, he sits at 12 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Then another kid comes in, sits at the 6 o'clock to the other kid's 12 o'clock. They start staring at each other. And the kid says, you keep grilling me, I'm going to wash you. I was like, the workshop has just started. Yeah. <laughs> right. So if I'm experiencing that kind of interaction with language that way, and I'm walking by every day, and they're teaching me something else at school, I have to be ready to honor that moment that I keep walking by. Mm-hmm. Now, one of those storytellers are not going to be around anymore. Mm-hmm they might come back and ask you, yo, you remember that story you told that night that we were sitting in front of uh, 2026? Mm. And you know exactly what story they asking for. Mm. In many ways, as a poet, I feel like I want to honor that right now. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. So there is a kind of that base where it's almost like being a kind of, a, not a sounding board, but you've been place in a kind of little chamber and you have to kind of find your way out Mm -hmm. of that chamber Mm -hmm. you know as a point of witness testimony narrative poetry lyric whatever have you at your disposal that you need to use to tell the story shit even if i use my hands yeah i'm still telling the story right yeah yeah. Mm -hmm. i feel like you're am i am i cutting you off no more Mm -hmm. yeah i feel like you're also you know, it's like not just in your work, and and you know, this is such a narrow lens through which to view. But I think of the way in which I first saw you, which was at the preemptive education conference through Urban Word, mm-hmm. and you were re- you were, you were doing like a professional development workshop on how to teach workshops. <laughs> it was fucking, you know, it was a great workshop. Everybody in there was like had notepads out, pens moving. <laughs> like I need to remember everything that Willie just said, right? And I came up to you afterward. I'd never met you. I didn't know any... You know, like, I was very, very young. I didn't know many people, right? But I had just started teaching at the Positive Health Project. And I, like, hit you... I just, like, tapped you. And you were talking to many people. And I was like, hey, I just... That was really, really powerful. I just started this program. I'm teaching. And I, like, do you got anything that could help? Or, like, can we keep in contact or whatever? And you, like, kind of, like, briefly looked past me in like not an offensive way at all you're like yeah, yeah just like write your address down or whatever you know like and I was like okay I like shuffled along and then literally two days later Smoking Lovely shows up in the mail mm-hmm. you know like handwritten address to me you know I spend fucking like I don't know a month six weeks trying to get back to emails if somebody hits me up like to have a handwritten piece of mail 
show up two month, like two days after we have a, such a minuscule exchange and to immediately like devour that book and teach from it for years and years and years to come is such a powerful gesture that I'm wondering like in terms of like there's the writing of movement and then there's like the movement through the world of movement and like if those two things are related or just like if you have a philosophy of movement through the world that lets you meet someone you don't know at a professional development conference and send them a book you know like that doesn't strike me as a one-off that strikes me as someone who's like no i have a way i do things Mm -hmm. and that's the way i do things Mm -hmm. and like how does that philosophy get made that's what i'm trying to ask yeah so then if you come from a compassionate kind of collective right so that means where i grew up if i come from a community so whatever you need if i don't have it i know somebody who can get it for you Mm-hmm. Or I'll give it to you. You know what I'm saying? So those kind of exchanges were always there without something having to be gotten in return. Mm-hmm. That's the way that works. So it's kind of a love base in many ways. If you don't have rice, here's the rice. Right. If you don't have beans, here's the beans. I'm short right. on milk right now, here's the milk. And so when you grow up in that kind of community, what you're doing is just kind of a sharing type of community so that's where that comes from it's an automatic kind of reflex that way you know what i'm saying so i think that's where it it stems from but then i also thought you know what man these people that you're working with they might be able to use this you know um so i think at at best that moment where we can give of of ourselves freely without expecting anything in return that's a good moment Mm. I have a question. I've worked with young people in Chicago, and a lot of times I find that no matter what prompt I give them, they write very traumatic poems. They write very sad poems. And, you know, I guess I'm thinking about them with this question because I know you work with high school students, mm-hmm. both at Exeter and beyond. Mm-hmm. and. You know, when I when I talk to my students, I, I you know, I want to tell them, like, you know, not not just that they don't have to, I mean, they can write whatever they want, and they should, and they should write all of it. I guess I just wonder, like, sometimes, I, I guess I when I work with them, sometimes I'm like, damn, I really want you to see that this life is not just mm-hmm. sadness, you know what I mean? It's just not trauma, like, you, you really there's a lot here for you to love and cherish and like how do you I guess I wonder when you when you work with high school students and I'm sure working at Exeter that you get students from all over the place and they come to you and they want what how do you what do you what do you give them or what do you try and give students of color when they come to you at Exeter high school students when you work with them around the country what do you try to offer them and and what what do you try to steer them towards voice Voice? First thing, right away. Especially if they come into Exeter and they live from, in the Bronx. So let's say they want to write a personal narrative. So they write a lot of personal narratives in Exeter. So I got a kid from the Bronx. says, I was walking down the street with my boys, period. All right, we're going to keep it right there. Where's where's the voice that said, my boys, before you started getting mm. a little fancy? Because you knew that you were talking to and writing for a teacher. Mm. Now, let me. you tell me the same story that you're trying to tell me, but I want you to pretend that you're telling it to one of 
your friends mm. in the Bronx. I guarantee you the story is going to come out different. Yeah. Mm. Based, so need a yeah, that's right. Based on who's listening. Right? So that's one thing. So as a young poet, you're always going to tell a young poet, don't pay attention to your audience. In many ways, that could be a good advice. But if you take somebody like Edrich Knight, always thinking about his audience. And it's right. usually a black reader on the other side. Right. And so your first piece of advice is like, think about your audience. Who are you trying to write? For to? storytelling purposes. Right. For sure. Because it's going to change the way you tell the story, if not the whole story altogether. Right. Mm-hmm. So now let's look at the whole idea of you constantly bringing trauma. That means that, and Tazaki Shange used to say this, that in many ways we're always in a kind of combative mode. Mm-hmm. So how do we how do we use that combative mode as a level of either resistance to the trauma or to examine the trauma and come out on the other shot side? Now, should the poem have that much pressure on it though? That's another question that needs to be asked too that when you're teaching. But if you can get a young poet in a position where that voice is coming through and it's an honest voice yeah it's true that's where you kind of want to zoom in then at the content on the content end if the prompt is not either directed towards something quote unquote humorous they're going to steer toward what they know on the real end and you almost have to kind of let them go through that blue period as it were right Mm -hmm. like they have to get those poems out before they could see you know what? There were some funny moments around there, right? Mm-hmm. So my main, I think, piece of advice, and there's not enough drafting going on at the secondary level because mm-hmm. there's always assignments there to do. So if I had a chance to work with you as a high school student and I have you for 12 to 14 weeks, I would expect at least three drafts before we get mm-hmm. to the final. You can't do that. Mm-hmm. So part of what I tell the student right away, and I get this from a recording um, a Miles Davis recording from like 54, 57, and the album is called Relaxing with Miles. And they recorded in Inglewood. This guy, Rudy Van Gelder, used to audio engineer all these uh, albums from back then. And so there's a, there's a, the engineer is asking Miles right at the beginning of the album, he says, uh, well, uh, what's the name of this song, Miles? <laughs> <laughs> and Miles says, and Miles says, I'll play it and tell you what it is later. <laughs> yes, yes. So I tell my students, just write it. You could let's we could. I'll tell you what it is later. We'll, yeah. we'll we'll talk about what it is later. Yeah. Just write it. I had a student in one of my vers- workshops in Bona felt like she should not be there. Mm. I said, Well, why don't we switch it up? Let's forget poetry for now. Just tell me a story about. Anything. Anything. Mm-hmm. Man, she started talking about a party, her parents, and she told it, was com- it, was com- it, was com- it was coming out fire. I said, well, now we have to be ready to admit that maybe you shouldn't be writing poems right now. Mm-hmm. Huh. Maybe you should just be writing stories. Yeah. And then the poetry will come later. Yeah. We all have to face that moment, by the way. Yeah. As writers, where we say, I'm not fighting Bruce Lee. Mm. God. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. I just saw it to the dragon yesterday and shit. My wife, she wanted to see it for the first time. You know, wow. it was where 
What's the guy? Roper. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> that fight scene. That fight scene. Yeah. With terrible wig. With, with Jesus the terrible wig. And so yeah. Bruce Lee's standing there. He's already got caught. Yeah. In, in Han's underground kingdom. Terrible. And they bring him up to the yard. God. And Roper. Roper says. He looks at Bruce Lee. Bruce Lee looks at him. And he says, like you said, there's a point I won't go beyond. Hey, you know, as artists, sometimes scene. you have to kind of meet that point. Restraint, too. Oh, man. Yeah. You know, and, and I think there's, like, such a... I like the person that said that question, but then also, like, told the story like you asked, because there's then a humility there. So. It's not fishing. It's not like, I shouldn't be here. Tell me I should be here. It's like, nah, I might not need to be here right now. Can you help me? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And that's how I felt, like, when we were just speaking with Ebony Hogan. Thank you. Shout out to Ebony Hogan. But, like... All day. You know, the sensation of, like... I'm being told, I studied playwriting, I studied theater. I'm being told what playwriting is, and it has nothing to do with voice somehow, right? Like somehow the plays that I'm reading have nothing to do with people, you know? And it's just posturing that someone knew how to write a play. And so I said, I don't think I should be here, you know? And then it became like, well, no, you should write a play that's about people. And Mm -hmm. I feel like, that's often what you're getting at. It's just like, well, who, who, where your grandma stay? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, you get back down to the, like, to the, to the reason we love what we love. Right. Right? Which is, like, back what we were talking about from the beginning. Yeah. Like, you know, people got these ideas about the things that they love. Right. Ooh. But forget why they love what they love. Right. You know? Yeah. And, and, like. Come on, I, Thank you. <laughs> and so, but. But I feel like the joy with your work is that, and again, it's truly that, like, you could have been a poet or you could have not have been. Mm -hmm. But you still would have loved what you love, which is, like, the point, you know? I think that, I think, like, right, so I get existential often. (laughs) So I think the point of of doing the life thing, of being here, isn't to be Willie Perdomo, the poet, Mm -hmm. isn't even to be pop. Or, or what was your other name? Skinicky. Skinicky, right. It isn't even to earn a name eventually. Uh, it's to love the things right. and the people and and see if they maybe love you back and then see why you love them still Yeah. and then leave. And the beautiful thing about that is like going back to the story about Pat. Like whether or not yeah. you or Pat were poets, you would have taken him up time. I would have hung out with Pat. You would have yeah. taken him up time and like took him around. Pat, he, gives, he gives me a gauge and shit from when I know I'm reading a good uh, book of poetry. Because uh-huh. I'm reading it and I'm fucking close and I just throw it again. Yes, <laughs> yes. Like, that's the best reaction. That's the equivalent of getting your, your, your head blow, the top of your head yeah, blow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just yeah. throw it across you and i like, fuck this dude, yo. What's the last book that made you throw it? You broke an answer delivery. I fucking wow. threw that shit across you that long point. Yeah, that's the Pat, listen, if you're listening, and we're going to probably have to shout you out on Just We need to make sure you're listening. Come on, podcast. We got to come on. We know you He's gonna come. He's gonna let me. Hey, come on the podcast. Yeah, man. So I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. I'm wondering. So you know, you you've been writing for a while now. I'm wondering what what changed for you, if anything changed for you, once you got on like deaf poetry and you were Mm. on TV, and suddenly, you know, people beyond the block were listening. You know what I mean? 
how that affected your process, or if at all, or like nah, what you did. It, it didn't change that much. I mean, I have a few significant highlights, I think, from that Deaf Poetry Jam. I mean, the Deaf Poetry HBO series. The first one was being introduced by most deaf. Right. Jasmine Bay now. Yeah. And so he was looking at the placard and shit. I think it was season one or season two, wow. I forget. Wow. And so he's looking at the placard and he's introducing all these poets off the placard. And then it comes my turn and he says, Oh, I don't need the placard for him. You know what I'm saying? He was like, I know what he put it on. Oh, yeah, because he used to run with that whole, uh, that uh, Brooklyn Moon. Like, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was Dante. He was Jessica and all of them. Yeah, so. So that's so he knew you. So he knew who wow. I was. I was like, all right, cool. He was like, yeah, I don't need a placard. He was like, this is my man here. You know what I'm saying? Like, wow. So that was cool. Then the second yeah. thing was, I was with my oldest son, and uh, he's 28 now. I think he was like 19, or, you know, 20, his early 20s. Mm. So I have to go get money from the bank and shit. So I pull up in front of a pump, <laughs> right? And so my son is in the car. I said, yo, wait right here. I'll be right back, all right? If somebody comes, just let me know. So I go, I get my money from the ATM, and I come back, and there's a traffic agent and shit giving me, about to start giving me a ticket. But he sees my face. He says, you lucky I like your work. And so my son just started cracking up. He was like, oh, Shit, I can't believe what I just saw, right? Wow. <laughs> and so, and then the wow. other thing was being in a movie theater in LA, and the and the ticket person was like, "Nice poem last night." <laughs> you just walk through, so shit like that. Mm-hmm. But you know, I mean, the readings were always there already, so mm-hmm. it, that was about it. Mm-hmm. But it was massive exposure. Of course, my mother was like, "Yo, why, why you didn't memorize your poem though?" You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I read you my book and shit, right, you know. Right. So, but that was about it. Um, I love that. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Like, yeah. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. Well, it's interesting to bring up that poetry because I think it's coming back. Like potentially, potentially, yeah. right? So, like, yeah. folks are talking, right? All right. And I think about that with, um, like, our generation of of dudes, you right. know, who I don't know. Like, it's just interesting to talk to people who were in that cycle of deaf poetry and having the narrative of the poet not be this like broke sweet broke 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 person but being like kind of superstar a little bit Mm -hmm. you know what i mean and like i do wonder what that of what import is that to us Mm -hmm. who i think are so like insistent on a certain level of visibility anyway Mm -hmm. like i wonder i wonder what it would feel like if anything you know, yeah. but I don't know. Those are things I think about. Like when I hear shit like that, that's so like like some little things like that will happen to me. And I think they're telling the joke. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I'm, and I wonder that like if there was a thing like, oh, yeah, I knew I was on the TV. That part of you is like, oh, yeah, this potentially might happen. I don't know. Do you, I don't know. I just find it fascinating. Like yeah. being known like John, you always put it really well. Like after a reading when people come up to you. They know you some. Yeah, I'm like, you know them nothing. I'm like, yeah. yeah, you actually do know me. Yeah. My first thought is you don't, but you do. You do. I've, like, documented you know me better than some of my mm-hmm. friends know me. I've like, told you so many things. Yeah. yeah. And if you only know this, then you know some of my inner thoughts without any of the, as Adam put it, like, circumference. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, you know... 
You also know the way that I think. Yeah, Yeah, but I don't know your touch points. No, I don't know nothing about that. So, I don't know. I think, like, what I like about the stories you just told, that they were just kind of like these one-off little, like, gestures of, like, no, I like the thing you did. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, they weren't like these, like, Ah! Like, you know, like, yeah, yeah, no yeah. one's running up and like right. literally bothering your entire life right 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 right. they sound kind of sweet you know? yeah I mean you get shit like that sometimes yeah. people just kind of cry what because imagine right imagine if I've if I if, if if I've written my book like 25 some odd years ago almost right. so there's somebody that was read it when they were like 16 wow yeah so you say yo you know I had to keep your book under my bed and shit, you know? Yeah. Like, so that's yeah. a whole nother level of wow. communication and relationship like intimacy. with the book. Yeah. Right? Without you there to read it. Right. And so that's when it becomes, you know, uh, there's a different dynamic there, right? Because that relationship, that means, in other words, if you were part of someone's reading habit before they went let's say, to sleep. You just became part of the dreamscape. Mm. How to process that. Because you come back to that same person, there they are. That was the person that was in my ear and shit while I was reading. Right? So you can't expect too much from the culture. No. In that respect. Mm. I feel like it's too much to hold. Honestly, your impact must be too much to hold. You know, like, I I just think of so many poems that I've written that wouldn't have been possible without reading your work. Mm -hmm. Without being like, oh man, you mean I can write about things that somebody said to another person in the way that they said it to another person and that that is art and, like, poetic and is, like, more powerful than other modes of communication that have been sold to me. You know, like, I just feel like every time I read one of your poems, it was, like, a different door opened into the burning fire that is anyone's personal content Mm -hmm. that I was able to walk through. Like, I didn't even know that it was a door. Mm. And how do you even hold that? I mean, you must... you probably can't. I, mean, I don't know. I mean, other than to be like weirdly or strangely grateful for it. I mean, these days more, right? These days there's more. As I get older, there are different varying levels of kind of mediation. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a teacher and all that. So all those things kind of come before hmm. you kind of being a poet in the world. So they have to go through those things hmm. before you even start to think of yourself like I'm this poet in this world. Like part of what we do part of the danger I think behind it sometimes is that when we're in front of a lot big audiences we can grow to depend on them. Mm. The thing is because we come from communities then reading a poem is not such an individual private pastime anymore. Mm. This is for all of us. Yeah. Jose Mike D said it best, right? Para todos. Right? So That's the beautiful thing about Everything that you've said is everything comes back to, like, your community. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so it feels like everything you're doing is right. it's not just Willy Perdomo, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's everybody all the time. Well, that's, that's the weird thing about it. Because the thing I'm trying to reconcile and still always reconcile is being so far from my yeah. community. Physically. Right. But still, psychically, I'm deeply in touch with what I think is my community. Right. And you find your community in some of the places where you least expect. 
Well, right, I think, fine. you know, my mom, you know, shout out to Marcel Bailey, who should yes, definitely yes. be on the podcast. Yeah. I think my mother has said enough, like, dropped enough gems <laughs> to be qualified as a poet. Mm. She would never call herself that because she's shy. I don't know. She's a beautiful person. Mm. But um, she she essentially has this theory that, like, you, you know, she's a community woman, right? Grew up. Uh, for four years in Columbus, Ohio, shout out to Ohio, and then moved to Los Angeles. And so everything for her is about, is about like, what's mine is yours, what's mine is yours forever. And willingly clothes gone from her, you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like food gone, like come live in the house, you know what I mean? Like the, my mom is just come live in the house. Yeah, you know, So many people I know and love have lived in my house longer than I have, do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? And that's like, so... For her, it's almost like a template. And if you can take that and make other places houses, then you've done that. Then you did this right. You did the community part, your upbringing right. If you can go be the person to make that exist somewhere else. Right. right? So that like it always comes back because it's always going to come back. Mm-hmm. you know. And it's always going to come back if you did it right. And so I think like... Because I, I, I contend with this a lot. Like I'm from LA. I love my hood. Like... I can go to Crenshaw on 48th and like mourn my cousin, you know, like this is the anniversary of his passing. So my heart right now isn't even in this room. It's like on Crenshaw on 48th, at the McDonald's, at the Cedar Sinai, at the fucking church on Normandy. That that's where I am. Mm-hmm. But I'm also here. And so I think to be psychically somewhere is just as valid, if not more, than to be physically somewhere. Yeah. We put a lot of weight on the physical, but kind of fuck that, though. It's just a circumstance. Yeah. Because you are also, you're, you're always in Harlem. Yeah. Yeah, in, in my dream life, in, yeah. my, in, my, in my imaginary, in my like interrogation in that level of legislation, examination, and shit that we think about where we're truly, truly from mm. right. at that point, right? I mean, it, the beautiful thing about what I feel, the space I'm in now in terms of the way I'm connecting is that when my boy asks for the story, mm. I'm not worried about teachers and readers and all that. I'm going to use every word, every language, mm. whatever language at my disposal, and I'm going to write freely. And I'm just going to have to depend on your generosity at that point, right? Like, as readers. But even if you don't get it, fuck it, because he asked for the story. But what I think maybe we all struggle with is that moment where we have to disconnect from the people we say we love so we can go write our poems. It's the hardest thing. It's the hardest fucking thing. Like, you have to lock yourself up. You got to leave Chicago. You got to go to California for three and a half weeks, four weeks, and lock yourself up. And, and work. I mean, ideally, we should be able to write from the kitchen table. Sometimes there's Sometimes. that level of distraction that might not allow you to do it. But yeah. even though, you're still you're still doing it alone. Yeah. yeah. I wonder... Oh, go ahead. I have, so, the question that I want to ask is, not only are you a writer, but you're also a publisher. You had mm-hmm. Cypher books. And, and so, I wonder... At what point that came along and, and what it meant to you to be not just, you know what I mean, about your own work, but to be putting other people's work out into mm-hmm. the world and what, what guided that decision? Uh, that's, for me, that was what gets brought to the table and what doesn't. So most of my, everything I've done in this lifetime has been 
as a result of my love of books. So I've, I've worked for a literary agent. I've worked at a publishing house at Henry Holt. Mm -hmm. um, and then I decided, you know what, man, it's time to kind of bring a lot of these poets in right now who have followings, who have audiences, who have a fan base, for lack of a better phrase. Right. But they want, they don't, no one's publishing them. Yeah. For so many reasons. Having worked at a, a New York City publishing house, I can tell you what goes into those, some of those decisions when you're at the table. Will it sell? Will it not sell? So on and so forth. But what I wanted to do was bring out first books, and but I also wanted to have someone like Suhair Hamad, right. who was at that point at the height of her Broadway life. I love Suhair. Yeah. And I said, look, if she probably could have published anywhere, or maybe not, mm -hmm. but if you're ready, let's set it off. And we set it off with her, and then you kind of go down the line. You see yeah. Roger and Rachel, and then John. John so yeah, that book is so good. So Tahimba was the one to introduce me to John wow. in Chicago, and we went to Harold's and shit. You and John Mudio at Harold's and Tahimba. And Tahimba. And Tahimba. Yeah, and Tahimba introduced me to John. Tahimba was living in Chicago. in Chicago. Yeah, so he says, look, I got somebody that you might be interested Where in. Where was John at? John, John was living in Chicago? John was either still at NYU at that point and looking for a job, I think. We got to get John on the podcast. We got to get John on the podcast. So he bought, he we bought get 20 pages the and then right away we like, we'll do it. You and saw it. You saw the 20 pages and yeah, you were man. like, God damn, that, this is a book. That this is, book. That's another poet that man, made Man, I brought that book. book. <laughs> like, you know, fuck, man, you know what, man? Like, yeah, that book. Best puzzle I've ever read. Yeah. That a book. thousand year tradition. Up jump. That book, I read that book, man. So I'm I'm a Chicano, I'm a Mexican American. That was like probably the first book by a Mexican American that I ever saw. And I read that book and I was like, God damn, this is a like I, I loved it immediately. Yeah. I read it cover to cover, read it, you know, three, four, five times. I mean, I mean of his generation, right now on the short lyric, he got it. Mm. He's, I can't wait to see his name. He got yeah, it. Can't I wonder wait. he got can't it. So wait. just to pivot oh. and uh, respect your time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. We're we're winding down. I wonder if this is like a catch-all question, but is there like one, I don't know, like one or two stories. It could be one, could be two, like that you just feel like, man, this happened and then, you know, it was just super impactful. Like it made me realize this. I don't know. It's not a great question, but it's it's broad in that like what stories have we missed? Like what's something that happened that changed the trajectory of your life or like really informed who you are as a person? I think one one of them I overheard this older man and um there was a dude that he was talking to. And the dude he had a little bit of a Jones and he was kind of coming down from it. Right. And so he tells, the, the, the young kid tells the older man, the older man looks at him, he says, uh, they standing there on the corner, he said, what's wrong? And he says, you know, I got another day before, you know, this is out of my system, before it's over. And the older man told him, it's over now. So when he said that, I said, well, why do we have to wait for shit to be over? Mm. Mm -hmm. Like, 
it's over now. Mm. Right? So that's one, I think, one of the stories that I think I remember. But the other one, and I still come back to Raymond. And Raymond really was there to kind of guide me from a distance through my humanity, my, my life as a writer, my life as a man. And the whole idea that sometimes we have to go far to come closer to that which we love. The fact that we have to kind of do that shit, be writers, be poets, be husbands, be brothers, be cousins, be teachers, be playwrights in the motherfucking dark. Mm. And as you get out of there, that's where your narrative starts to kind of take place. As you're coming out the dark. If you're lucky to come out of it. So I think those two kind of, for me, are pivot points. As I keep kind of going, I always kind of keep them as little sound bites and shit in my mind as I keep living, you know? So... You want to read a poem? Yeah, let's do it. Yeah, yeah. Give it up one time for Willie. Yo, thank you. Yo, thank you. I'm glad we were finally able to do it, man. Yeah. Yeah. We tried like eight times. And yeah, shit. we like started the podcast. Like before we even had episode one, I hit up Willie. Yo, like, we've been trading emails for a while. So, for a long time. So listen, b- before Willie reads this poem, wherever you're at. Look, it doesn't matter if you're on the subway in Uh, New York City, you're on the CTA in Chicago, you're uh, on the Jeffrey Jump, you know what I mean? Wherever you're at, you're driving it in fucking... 405 traffic. 405 traffic. You better put your hands together, turn the volume way up, give it up one time for Willie Perdomo. Nothing like hanging out with the poetry gods. Yes, All right. You know what I'm saying? Like, <laughs> you, so, so this is the beginning of the, the, the next thing I'm working on. And it's an it's, exclusive. Uh, it is. Although I, although I read it at the Gotham Comedy Club for the Lozada, the, the Lozada Lowdown Live and shit. So it was a nice little balance. Or, you know, it was a nice little balance. We're going to cut that part We're going to cut that part. It's <laughs> <Excuse me. laughs> right. well premiered. Well premiered for the poetry guys right yeah, here. Yeah, appreciate it. So that. basically, like real quick, this is at the beginning when the crew, the crazy bunch, gets founded. Oh my God. Uh, they get their name. Wow. Names. <clears throat> You remember, that was the year of up rock, speed knots, pillow bags, two for five, Jesus pieces, and bamboo. The Willy Bobo was up to ten, and some would have said that a science was dropped on our summer. That summer that was lit with whispers of wild style, rock steady battles, white party plates, making all kinds of moons on the playground. The shrill still fresh with the future, somersaulting off a monkey bar. A future placing bets that all us old heads, making faces at the stars, heads desperate to find a new cool could not flip pure. Recuerda la mano, that was the July that the burner was used to eat, manifest Sunday sermons, a literary influence with humming climaxes, a bribable tale, a dub tied to a string, and squashing beef wasn't an option. The summer of quarter water, myths and lies. Mm. That was the summer of Charlie Chase hijacked megawatts from Rose's kitchenette, found gems in his milk crate, spun his one and twos below rims that vibrated with undocumented double dunks. That summer, Bapu would turn up to extra status in the Roxy scene of Beat Street, 
The camera panned his Kazal Lace Charleston up rock. He was the only one in the crew who had reduced fame's window by a fifth. We practice our lives in lobbies and layaway, ganders and goofs, boosting lines from the radio, breaking dynamite styles. We were God bodies. We had God in our bodies. That's what Brother Lowe used to say. He used to say, not for nothing, but I'd rather live gangster than die punk punk. So we downloaded his bars and gems, and no doubt, when it was time to tell our story, out would come fire and spit. That was the summer I started to squeeze into black composition books like Judgment Day, Once Local, was now going express. Back then, Palo Viejo was thermal and therapy, bones were smoked in the cut, and you had to expect that a sublime jungle gym giggle was accompanied by buckshot. You remember that was the summer that the boys bagged line and he made page five of the Daily News. That day our grills had dropped to below freezing when the boys hogtied him, walked him down the fire escape that led to Florsheim. I know you remember, bro. That was a season we had reason to rock capes and wings that some of us got higher than most that if they weren't for kids, tricks needed cake and Harley were ever pulled from a hat. All that and a bag of bontons was enough for one of us to say, I'm straight. That was the summer that was paid in full with destiny. And that same day, the day of our founding, we all had somewhere to go. Dwight and Jay were going to the D, the mighty D with Rosie, Sonia, Lourdes, Cachita, Tamika and her sisters and Nena's cousin from Wagner used to castle and smoke, swear in secret, share hoops and slap their Bostons on the chess tables. Charlie Rock, Maxwell, Heck Collect says something about crashing Sonia's Sweet Sixteen. There was a baptism on Brook, Brook Avenue. I forget for who, but I think it was Mildred's baby. And the old lady, the one who used to stand three feet away from everyone on the block and yell, Take it out of me! Take it out of me! Sacamelo was doing a preparation, and you, you had just heard that Josephine was messing with some dude from Grand Concourse. <laughs> it was Nesta that said TCB, the crazy bunch. Mm. By that age, he had grown a full beard, rocked all kinds of captain, had fisticuff through an Apache line of Don Brothers, and we were all there when he did a half pike or five cake, five cake stack mattresses shimmying with summer and blackout. Naturally, you have to recall that day was new crew deep, puffed and passed. And I used the word naturally in a census. And Casey said, you heard this nigga? He just said naturally. The spliff was choo-choo. The guffaw was lit. Shit, I laughed too. So naturally, old ass who had a decisive left hook. Who had all of two words to say at a party, minus two steps at a jam. Who was the only one to draw one-on-one -on -one with Nestor said, word, the crazy bunch. Uh, yo, I fucking love Instagram. That's that. That's like the only thing I have right now. <laughs> I gotta at Willie Perdomo, yo, yeah. I at see at Willie Perdomo, so I love Instagram. Yeah. So you can find me there. Awesome. Uh, or you know, WillyPerdomo.com or Willie shit. Perdomo. If you ever in New Hampshire, man, give a holler, at Exeter, man. Just let me know. Oh man, and yeah, please yeah. buy all three of Willie's books, <laughs> yeah. even the second one that is one hundred twenty dollars on Amazon. It's <laughs> money. Well, well spent. You know what I'm saying. Wow. Uh, yo, yeah. John, where where can the people find you? I am at I am John Sands J O N S A N D S on Instagram and Twitter. Yeah. Uh, you know, come say hey. Please, you know, go check out John's Instagram because by the time you hear this, there'll be tons of wedding pictures up. And we fucking love John Sands, yes, we and do. you want to yes, see those do. pictures. <laughs> 
You're gonna want to see Thank those pictures. Follow at I am John Sands Aziza Barnes. Hello. Woo! What's good? Where can the people find you? Just at Aziza Barnes on Instagram. At Aziza Barnes writer. Uh, otherwise unfound. Wait, okay. at Aziza Barnes writer on Instagram. Yeah, that's correct. Instagram on on IG. And Twitter Aziza Barnes. Yeah. Gotcha. And Facebook Aziza Barnes. But please don't find me on Facebook no more. It's, it's getting out. It's too much. It's a little awful. bit much. It's awful there. Jose, where can the people find you? You can find me at underscore Jose Olivares on Instagram and Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, I am Jose Guadalupe Olivares. Uh, you can also find me in Chicago, where I'm at most of the time. <laughs> when you're not Cooling here. on the South Side, come through. Uh, Jose, tell them about what a five-star rating is going to do for you us. You know, oh, we, we... So, right now, I think we have... Like 45 five star ratings, and you know, a couple ratings less than that. But, uh, please, if you if you so feel inclined, please give us a five star rating, we would so appreciate it. We, you know, we're trying to make a dent in uh, yeah. in this podcast. We're not greedy, game. we just want to do more. We want to do more for you. Do more. It's about uh, you coming up. You know, the Portugal guys <laughs> will be in uh, in Roanoke, Virginia. So, if you're in the area, come through, follow us. We'll talk about more. At, uh, we'll talk about that more as it comes closer. We're also looking at doing a residency in Chicago, mm-hmm. so hopefully that will come through. As well as we got big things planned for AWP in Ooh. Tampa Bay. Cute. Uh, so, you know, keep in touch. We're, we're looking forward. <laughs> if you want to do things with us, hit us up. We are always available on Gmail. Email thepoetrygods at gmail.com. You can send us anything from, like, booking requests to your favorite poems to... You know, just saying hello. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whatever you got going on, hit us up. We're we're happy to read those. Yeah, don't think if you leave a five star rating that you can't send us an email. Yeah, you know, because we respond to that. We like all of it. We like all of it. Uh, Anything else we need to say? Um, No. I think that's it. John says we got to carry us out. Yeah. All right, y'all. So, thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next time. We are the Poetry Gods. Peace. They don't know. Let the good times.